But we are in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're in chapter 8. This is the last section of chapter 8. If you want to turn in your Bibles, if you have them. It's the last section of chapter 8. This has been a long passage, really, that started at the beginning of chapter 7. And so we've been taking it piece by piece going through. But this is the, the culminating event of Jesus' big confrontation with the Pharisees and with the religious leaders in Jerusalem in the temple. And uh, if they thought they were offended before, they're really going to get offended today. So (laughs) it's a great passage. Uh, I hope it'll be a blessing to you as well. Would you please stand one last time out of respect for the reading of God's word. God's word says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let us all now listen intently together to God's perfect and inerrant word. And so the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I do know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us, Lord, that the glory that you offer is better than anything the world has to offer And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that, to trust you in everything, Lord, to give our lives over to you, to trust you, to pick up our crosses and rejoice in that as we await for that day uh, when the, the glory of this world fades away and the true glory of the next will reign in our Lord Jesus. So Lord, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. When I was 24 years old, my best friend, my roommate, my partner in crime, as it were, a man named Brian Reese died from complications to HIV AIDS. And I couldn't go to his funeral. I just couldn't go. I wasn't a Christian. 
at the time. And neither is he, but I just couldn't go because I knew that I was going to hear two things. I was going to hear the people that were going to come up and say and do the celebration of life thing. And in my mind, his life was too short. He was an amazing guy. Smart, funny, beautiful, uh, entertaining, full of life. Dead. 24 years old. Fast moving. That's right. he, was, he was diagnosed and dead in eight months. And I thought, this sucks. This is not fair. This is awful. And there was nothing to celebrate in that, I thought. And the other people were going to get up and say, well, he's in a better place now. And I would think, how do you know? How do you know that? How do you know where he went or what happened? All I knew even as a non-Christian that there was something awful and tragic and just not right about death And I just couldn't go to the funeral. It was too painful a thing to go to. You know, and the fact is there is something tragic and awful and wrong about death. We all know it. But on the other hand, I mean, the other option that we think about is endless life. And we think of that in terms of this life. And who wants that, right? Even in the the great vampire novels, eventually they'd step out in the sunlight and kill themselves because eternal life of this quality isn't what it was cracked up to be. And who would really want to live in this suffering on this earth forever? Nobody would. So what's the the solution? You know, we we try to deal with the fact of death. We've talked about this before by creating fake immortalities, convincing ourselves we'll be young forever. We create false man-made heavens on earth try and t- tell ourselves that, that, that that's even possible, but the fact is they never play out. They never last. They're not what they p- it promise to be. And in the end, there's always death waiting. And in this passage, Jesus has just told us the solution, a real solution, a solution not just for death in this world, but a solution as to, uh, to the other opposite problem of an endless life of suffering. And he also tells us how we can know. It also tells us there how we can know that that's true. But it requires that we let go of trying to make fake immortality here and trusting in that. And it requires that we let go of creating false heavens on earth and let go of that. And you think that that would be an easy choice, but it's not. It's not such an easy choice because all of us are tempted the right now always seems so bigger, much bigger and better and more promising than the yet to come. But Jesus says that the yet to come is far, far, far better. And so the thesis here, big idea, the one thing Jesus wants us to know more than anything out of this passage is this, that we have to let go of the glory of this world if we hope to receive the glory of the world to come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have to let go of the glory of this world if we hope to receive the glory of the world to come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, let's work through that piece by piece. First, letting letting go of the glory of this world. Let's read from from verse 8. 48 through 50. So the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, 
I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. In there, Jesus is implying that you are seeking your own glory. I am not. I'm seeking the glory of my Father, and he's going to glorify me. There was, during the time of the Reformation, there was that Martin Luther came up with these distinctions that he called the theology of glory versus theology of the cross. The theology of glory was all man-centered. It was about, uh, it was about making a, a basically glorifying man and making heavens on earth, the same thing that we do today. They were, Martin Luther accused the medieval church of doing just that, taking Christianity and turning it into an earthly thing full of earthly glory rather than what the Bible taught, which was a theology of the cross, a theology of suffering in this life with the hope of glory in the next. And so a theology of glory in a simple, simple term is, is man exalted in a man-made heaven. And for these men, these Pharisees that Jesus is arguing with, that is exactly what they have done. Jerusalem above the nations, the Pharisees exalted in Jerusalem, and it's their knowledge, their holiness, their wealth, their power, and their reputation. It's all about those things. They are being glorified in this, and it's very little about the God who brought them out of slavery. Remember last week, they even said, we've never been enslaved to anyone. They have lost sight of the big picture to such a degree um, that their religion is no longer focused on God and what God does. It's now focused on them and what they do and the promises of God have become these earthly grand promises of a new Jerusalem, of a new temple, of Israel in the land, of ruling over the nations, and of them then being on top. And the problem, well, so the theologian of glory then, for the theologian of glory in our own day, how this hits us, for the theologian of glory, the church always grows. For the theologian of glory, the sick are always healed, the righteous are always blessed with abundance, the nation is always Christian, the Supreme Court is always conservative, interest rates are always low, your GPA is always high. The perfect relationship is always had or right around the corner. Uh, sexuality is an inalienable right. And everybody knows that you're the best. Your reputation in the world is unstained because you are the exemplar. That's the theologian of glory. And man, we could add a lot of stuff to that, couldn't we, of what the church wants and what people in the church expect. Some of the silly ideas we have. It comes down to it, that reputation of glory is really what these men are suffering from. They are admired by the broad culture, and then they're getting the benefits of all that across the board. And who wouldn't want that, right? Who wouldn't want that? Who doesn't want to be admired and, and you know, thought well of in the culture? And, uh, you know, Jesus said the heart of the problem is this. 
This is, he sums it up by saying they, this, these Pharisees, they love the best seats and they love to be called rabbi, meaning they love all, they've got like, they love the front, they run the front row, they love the backstage passes, they love the fact that everybody comes to them, and that they are the moral voice of the culture. And they are eating it up. They're like, we are the man. And the big problem in America is that the church is losing right now the reputation of glory. And we people are losing their minds about it. We used to get the best seats. We used to be the moral voice of the country. People would look to the church for moral guidance. And um, there's this story R.C. Sproul tells about in seminary in the, in, in the 50s, I think he was in the 50s, there were men in his seminary that were atheists. And he's like, what are you doing here? And they were like, well, there's a lot of money in this God business. Because at that time, pastors, the ministers, the, the heads of the churches were super respected figures. This church right here in the 50s, when it was 5,500 members strong, was they would, they would begin the service with the Marine color guard marching down the center aisle. There was a Marine in dress blue uniforms flipping pages for the organist. The, ma- the mayor, the admirals, all the important people in society would file into the front and they would do their thing. And uh, you know, I'm not disparaging some of that, let me say it like that, but... Um, you know, the point is that we used to get the best seats. The culture used to call us teacher. And along with that came about the idea that Christianity was about all those things. And it really never was. And so I'm not saying any of those things are inherently bad, but a lot of those things are what we've come to think of as what Christianity is all about. It's really not. So having those things purged away from us is a, can be a very Wonderful blessing in disguise. The biggest problem with theology of glory for the church, for us, is this. Two, let me, there's a lot we could say about problems. Let me just say two things. Number one is that the theology of glory makes the theology of the cross sound insane. Look at what these guys are saying to Jesus. When, when uh, you know, he, he's, they've gotten up to this point in the argument. It's, it's towards the end and... and after they've heard what he's had to say over the last you know, few weeks, we've been listening to what Jesus has said. He's, you know, at the end of the day, they ask him at the two questions. They say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And the second thing they say is, who do you make yourself out to be? None of, not, neither of those is a sincere question. And they ask him, are you greater than our father Abraham? None of those are sincere questions. That's a racial slur, an insult. Calling him, by saying he has a demon is saying that he's demented or that he's insane. Because how could anybody say what he has just said about them, that they are not holy, that their father is the devil, that they do not know God. There's only, in their minds, the only reason anybody could ever say that was that they must be insane. But what he's saying is true. They can't hear it because their minds are so focused on the theology of glory and their power and their wealth and their prosperity. They, when Jesus speaks out of the Bible, it 
sounds insane to them. And to us, in the same way, what happens with us in the church is that theology of glory makes things like when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, sound crazy. Because we don't expect for there to be any suffering. We don't expect anything bad to ever happen. Right? For a if you're a theologian of glory, it's all good. But that's not what Jesus says. You know, he promises us that we're going to struggle in this age, that we're going to suffer. And it takes different forms. You know, there's, uh, you know, there's parts, there's been parts of, of history where the church was in a prominent position and struggle looked very different than the way struggle looks now in the Sudan where the church is not in a prominent position. The struggle could be our struggle against sin, the old man that still desperately desires to have sin and the wreckage that comes with it. And God, in, by the power of his spirit, are struggling against that. Trust me when I say you know, you know that that is suffering. Amen? That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8 when he talks about suffering. He's not talking about outside persecution. In the beginning of eight, he's talking about the suffering that comes by putting the deeds of the flesh to death by the power of the Spirit. That produces suffering in our members, and it's painful, and it hurts. It's worth it, but it's difficult. Suffering comes in, our, in the relationships. When we, we're in relationships, you really like somebody, you're a sinner, they're a sinner. Eventually, boom, you guys collide. I mean, a church, a, church is like a, a church is like the bumper game car at the fair. All churches, this church, we're like that. You're driving around the bumper car and you're just knocking into each other, right? Bang, 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 sinning against each other. And that produces suffering because your feelings get hurt. And then, you, you know, then the worst part is you realize what you've just done and you say, gosh, I'm actually capable of sinning that badly. And there's suffering that we can expect in this life. And then there's also external suffering that's coming from persecution. The world now is not what it was just even 20 years ago. And 20 years from now, who knows where it's going to be? It's very easy to hold to a theology of glory when you really are on top, but when you're, the best seats are taken away, when you're no longer the teacher, when the culture no longer looks to you for moral guidance, but instead maybe looks to you as a moral pariah, it's not so easy to hold on to a theology of glory, but the good thing about that is it becomes a whole lot easier to hold on to a theology of the cross, which is what Bible calls us to do. The second big problem is that the theology of glory must come to an end in death. And so these these theologians of glory, these Pharisees are looking at Jesus saying, "You're demented, you're demon-possessed, you're insane." When the truth is, they're ones that are really insane because they are hoping for things that even if they got them, they're going to die. Let's do, what if they got everything they wanted? Imagine, they got everything they wanted. They kicked out the Romans. They took control of the land. They rebuilt the temple in 24 karat gold and encrusted it with diamonds, a big Judah across the front like an ice grill. They were kings of all they surveyed. And then what? And then they die. 
You know, there's that awful, the awful reality is that in 70 AD, they did rebuild the temple and it was crushed. It was all gone. So what about us? What about you? What if you got everything you wanted? All those things the world tries to distract you with. What if you got the perfect career? What if you got the perfect house? What if you were driving the perfect car? What if you got that perfect relationship that finally came around? Just think of it. I mean, in your own mind, what is it that you always tell yourself, if I just had blank, everything would be okay? And I'm not saying that all those things are, are wonderful things. God may bless us with those. He may not. But the thing is that those when we look at the scope of history and the time of your life here on earth, even if you were to get everything you're distracted by, everything your heart says you must have to be okay, how long would you have it? I did the math on that. And if we just take recorded history, 10,000 years of recorded history, that means that your lifespan is eight one-thousandths of a percent of 10,000 years of recorded history. Eight one-thousandths of a percent. Now, if we took that and spread it out to the history of the earth, we took that, and even worse would be taking a timeline of eternity, stretching out infinitely that way, and the size of your life would be a tiny little speck way over there by that window. And let's say the timeline goes down to Ecuador. And there's one little dot that that's your, your life. That's the amount of time that all the stuff that you wanted so bad, you got to have. And then what happens? And then you die. And it goes to somebody else, like the Ecclesiastes says. And he may be a fool. <laughs> he may be your child, and he's a fool. You know, the prophet says for good reason that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And the reality is that when God asks us to let go of the simple glory of this world, despite the fact that we think that we are losing everything or we have everything to lose, these Pharisees stood in front of Jesus thinking, if I did what he said, I would lose everything. And we think the same way. But the truth is, that we have everything to gain and we wouldn't be losing much because Jesus, the word of our God, offers something far better than the glory of this world. He offers us the glory of the world to come. Second point. First point, letting go of the glory of this world. Second, receiving the glory of the world to come. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I think that, I believe that creation is full of things that teach us stuff about God. I mean, we know that to a certain extent. We know that the heavens declare the glory of God. God made the universe the way he did. I say this in the prayer every week. To show us that that as big as the universe is, as beautiful as it is, as powerful as it is, as much energy is stored in the universe that the, the creator of that must be bigger than what he's created 
So it's as big as it is to teach us how big God is. You know, Proverbs says, look at the ants to teach us things. I think we can learn things. Look at, look at a spider web and a fly caught in a spider web. That can teach us some very valuable things. I also believe that the, way, the reason that we, our eyes hurt and we can't look at the sun is to teach us something about the glory of God. That the glory of God is, is, is not that we can't see it or the glory that God has, has planned to give us is so bright, so powerful, so amazing that we, it's not that it's not there in front of us, it's just we can't see it. It's too bright, it's too hard to look at, it burns our eyes in our fallen state. We're just not even capable of realizing or recognizing the bigness, the beauty of the glory that God has for his children that's waiting for us in the world to come, that he even now in a small way begins to share with us through the power of the Spirit. It's not that our life or that Jesus is offering us extended life. We're not going to be sitting on clouds, playing harps, uh, taking Prozac because we're all depressed, having anxiety attacks. That's not it. It is not just a, more glory. It's not just more life. It's a different quality of life. It's a whole different quality of glory that God is offering us, that Jesus is offering us. And the problem is, though, that it comes through the theology of the cross, the suffering in this world in anticipation for the glory of the next. And even though these Pharisees are insincere in their questions, even though they are attacking him with racial slurs and insults, he still answers their questions with patience and he's answering them in a way that is continually holding out the salvation to them. Isn't that in itself amazing? They're done with him. The Pharisees are done. You are a Samaritan and you have a demon. They've just done what Jesus calls the unforgivable sin in Matthew and the other Gospels. You do your works by the power of demons. You are possessed. Even in the midst of that, though, Jesus is still holding out the possibility of salvation for them. He's teaching them even in that. And this is, look, listen to what he says. He's, the Pharisees ask him two questions. The first one we'll answer here. The second one we'll answer in the next point. First question, they say, are you greater than our father Abraham? That's a rhetorical question. They're not really wanting to know. They're saying, you're not greater than our father Abraham. You're a nut job, and we know it. But he answers them. In verse 56, there's two parts to this answer. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The first part of that is your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He's telling them, you are not like your father Abraham. Remember, he said last week, you did not do the things your father Abraham did. Now he's telling them that you are not like your father Abraham. Your father Abraham was not a theologian of glory. Your father Abraham languished in a land that the Lord promised him but never gave him. He languished there as an exile 
and as a, a sojourner all the days of his life. Why would he do that? Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about Abraham and about all the prophets. This is a summary statement, but he speaks about all the prophets. He says some of them were sawed in half. That, does that sound like a theology of glory? Some of them were naked, without clothing, without food. Uh, and the, uh, it says something about the world not being worthy of them. Abraham himself, going to this land that God promised him, never receiving the land, but living under other kings and being an exile, living in tents. But the author of Hebrews says this about Abraham and about all the prophets. It says, these all, including Abraham, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, historically. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are, not, that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham suffered in this life looking forward to something else, something better. Do you know what this teaches us? That Abraham had a cognizant understanding of that. As he was circling the land, he understood it's not about the land. This is a picture of something even greater that God has promised us, that he's promised me. And even though it never came through physically in the land, that didn't faze him. He was seeing the heavenly city, the new heavens and the new earth that God was promising him, and that is what he fixed his hope on. Second part of that answer. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, And then he saw it and was glad. All of a sudden he shifts to past tense there. Now how in the world did Abraham see Jesus' day? The Pharisees catch that and they they make fun of him for it. They're like, you're not 50 years old, you've seen Abraham. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. How could Abraham have possibly seen Jesus? Jesus' day. And there's all kind of controversy about what this may mean. Maybe Jesus, maybe he's saying when the Lord appeared to Abraham in his tent before destroying Sodom and Gomorrah that that was Jesus. Maybe in the covenant ceremony when God promised Abraham, when he sealed the promises to Abraham in the covenant, maybe that was it. But listen again, right after that passage I read from Hebrews, listen to the next passage from Hebrews. The author says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, here's here's Abraham about to offer up his son Isaac, knowing that Isaac was the one who God promised would be the one through whom all these promises would come. If he kills Isaac, the promise is dead. Unless... Going on, he considered, Abraham, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, you know the story. 
Abraham has his son finally. One morning God wakes him up and says, I want you to go to the land of Moriah, to a mountain I will show you, and I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Abraham walks through the desert for three days, all the while in his mind his son is already dead to him. They get to the base of the mountain. Abraham straps the wood to to Isaac's back, and the father leads his son up the mountain. And at the last minute, God provides for himself a sacrifice, a ram. And then Isaac is resurrected off of, the, off, of the, off of the wood funeral pyre. The ram is sacrificed in his place. And it's the author of Hebrews seems to imply that figuratively, Abraham had some sort of understanding of what that all meant. Maybe not as fully as we do, but in some sense... And here's the most interesting part of the passage that, this talk, that talks about this in Genesis 22. The most interesting part is this. And so after the fact, after all this happens, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it became a proverb. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That means that what Abraham called that mountain became public knowledge and people were looking at that mountain and they would say to themselves, on the mount of the Lord, he shall provide. Now we know from other parts of the Bible that the land of Moriah or Mount Moriah is where David bought the land to put the temple on. And so the place where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac was the place in Jerusalem where the temple was. I think it was probably the mountain just north of the temple city itself. But what does that tell us? Listen to those tenses. He's not saying Abraham didn't call the place the Lord has provided. He didn't call the place on the mount of the Lord it was provided, but will provide, shall provide. It's forward-looking. It was prophetic. And Abraham had an understanding of that. And that is what he was placing his hope in. He could wander through Palestine for a hundred years. He could wander through until the day he died, not receiving that promise in the land, but he could receive it knowing that what God had promised him was even better, that through his descendant, all this would play out and bring salvation to him, to his family, and to all the world, everyone who would believe in this promise. He understood that salvation wasn't from our own glory, our own power, our own holiness, our own might, but that salvation would be provided. We would receive it by the sacrifice of Christ, the one for him to come. And that the glory of the world to come would be received by what God would do for us. That's what Abraham saw. That rejoicing is the word for jubilee. It is a religious rejoicing in salvation. Abraham was overwhelmed with rejoicing at what God was going to do, what he had revealed to him on that mountain. That we would receive the glory by what God would do for us in the sacrifice of his son. So, letting go of the glory of this world, receiving the glory of the world to come, final point through Jesus Christ our Lord second question that they ask him is this who do you make yourself out to be 
that's really, a, I think, a better translation of that would be, who are you pretending to be? It's not a sincere question. They're not saying, who are you? They're saying, who do you think you are? Who are you trying to pretend to be? What are you trying to make yourself out to be, buddy? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 858. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There's no way to sweep that one under the rug. No matter how you cut it, no matter how you slice it, that is an unmistakable claim to deity by Jesus. He's taking the covenant name, the memorial name of Yahweh, onto himself and saying, before Abraham even existed, I am. It's one of the strongest places in the whole Bible where Jesus makes this claim to deity. It is a one-verse theology crusher so that anyone wanting to hold on to the belief that Jesus was a created being or that Jesus was anything other than somehow united and a bearer of the divine memorial named Yahweh himself, this verse all by itself crushes all hope, as hopeful as some people try to still be. And listen in conjunction with what he said earlier in verse 824. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In verse 828, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that's a reference to the crucifixion, then you will know that I am. It's a reference to the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the glorification of Jesus in the mind of John. So once you understand the force of this statement, you can never go back to saying silly things like Jesus never claimed to be God. Because either Jesus was who he claimed to be, he was was a bearer of the divine name, or he was a liar, and he's therefore now disqualified from being the sinless sacrifice that we must have for our salvation. And if that's true, all of Christianity is undermined. We, of all people, are to be pitied because we are dead in our sins. Jesus must be that in order for us to be saved by his own words. But he doesn't just say this in a vacuum. He's not just going, he's not just thumbing his nose at the Pharisees to rile them up or to freak them out. He's saying this for a reason. They're asking him, are you greater than your father Abraham? Who do you make yourself out to be? And in great patience, he answers those questions. And those are the answers that he gives. And the reason is, first, he's stating what the author of Hebrews later says, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's saying that Jesus is the salvation of God for all time. And just as Jesus was the salvation for your father Abraham so too am I the salvation for you. And so then too is he the salvation for all of us. Throughout all time, Jesus has been and always will be the salvation. The one salvation that God has offered to the world. To anybody who would have it humbly by faith until 
the day when that door closes. And someday that offer will close. But now, today, it is open for anyone who would believe. But second is more important why I think he says this here. It's, that, it's because our, he's saying, what we learn from it is that our salvation is insecured in the reality of God, in the attributes of God, in his unchanging nature, in his all-powerful nature, in his all-knowing nature. That all those things, all that all those things are the foundation and the strength of our salvation. It's not on our works. The, the God of the universe incarnated and came to us, bringing us this salvation for us. And it's rooted in His strength, in His power, in His everlasting Word, and in His promises, which can never break. And it teaches us that then Jesus is not a theologian of glory, is he? He's a theologian of the cross. He left behind the glory of heaven to descend into our suffering and suffer for us and with us to bring us the salvation by way of the cross so that we might have eternal life with him. Not just everlasting life, but the same quality of life that Jesus is having now in the heavenly realms. Free of sin, free of death, free of disease, free of sadness, free of pain, free of emotional heartache, free of depression, free of anxiety, free of everything that so makes us suffer in this life. And that's what Jesus offers. Anyone who keeps his word, anyone would never see death. Let me conclude with one more story. It's another story, another family that we know, friends of the family, and their, their grandmother was dying. She was on her deathbed. She had suffered from Alzheimer's for years. Um, had gotten to the point where she didn't recognize anyone in her family, and she was on her deathbed, but she'd been a Christian her whole life. She knew the Lord. There were little moments when she would, they, in, even in the midst of her worst dementia, they would play hymns that she remembered and they would, there, would be a slight rec, you know, there would be a slight recognition in her face. But as she was on her deathbed, and this isn't the first time I've heard stories like this, but maybe you've all heard them too. She was on her deathbed and, and, and the, right before she died, all of a sudden, it was like her face cleared, her eyes opened, she became lucid and they looked at her and her daughter, for some reason, just said, Mom, do you see Jesus? And she said, yeah. And she died. It's like that. I can't prove this from the Bible, but I suspect that when Jesus says things like, he who believes in me, has, he is, he's passed beyond death. And when he says that, he who keeps my word will never see death. He who keeps my word will never taste death. Those are Hebrew words that mean experience and, and, and go through in the fullest sense. I think that the moment before we die, split second before we take that last breath, where nobody else can see it, the Lord comes to us with his angels and he says, come on. And we go. 
and this little tiny dot on the timeline of eternity fizzles out and goes away with all the pain and suffering in it and the world of beauty and glory and light opens up for us and we're there forever. Do you believe that? It's true. Lord, we cannot begin to, be, to speak uh, or even say how thankful we are for what you've done for us and who you are. We get so wrapped up in the concerns of this world and the assailing, competing gospels that come at us. And our hearts are so fickle, Lord, we run after these foolish things thinking they're going to save us, but they never do. We even know that. We know people that have run after them and have come back and said, don't, don't do it, don't do it. And we want to run anyways and chase after these foolish things. Lord, even if we were to get all the desires of our heart when we got there, we would realize that they were empty and then we would die. And even if we did belong to you, we would have wasted the years that could have otherwise been glorifying your name in all we do and think and say. And so we pray that your spirit, Lord, would be with us and that you would strengthen us, that we would be putting to death the deeds of the flesh by your spirit so that we could rejoice in that, but even more so, Lord, that we would be glorifying you in the midst of this dead and dying world. Lord, we pray that you would light us on fire, burn off all the things that cause us to suffer, and help us to be lights in the world for you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.